Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Brian Schrader, the president and CEO of BIA, a provider of e-discovery services and digital forensics. Hi, Brian. How are you? Great. Happy to be here. I'm looking forward to it as well. So tell us about your background and your role at BIA. Bought my first computer. I was eight years old and hooked on technology. Ended up going to law school, practicing law for a couple of years before founding BIA in 2002. Originally more focused on computer forensics than e-discovery, but very quickly got into e-discovery and haven't ever looked back since. BIA followed that same trend, started out more investigative computer forensics, doing a lot of data collections, and then very quickly expanded out into e-discovery. Over the years, we've built software and provided every aspect along the EDRM, and today we're a full-service e-discovery provider across the nation. What trends do you see impacting the e-discovery industry in 2021? The vast majority of those trends really come from the remote work environment we're in today because of the pandemic. Some of these trends had started before that. Mainly what I'm talking about are collaboration platforms, like Slack and Teams are the two most popular by far. Teams has really, really grown exponentially, as has Slack, but I think Teams is probably more popular these days, at least in the corporate environment and in big corporations, because it's so integrated into Microsoft's environment. We started seeing a lot of companies and having to do collections of data and figuring out how to not only collect from systems that weren't always built with e-discovery in mind, let alone data retention, but then how to deal with that data in review tools that weren't also necessarily designed for this type of communication. It's like taking the instant messaging nightmare that had been around for a long time and translating that into a much bigger issue. So we'd started seeing some of that stuff, obviously, before the pandemic hit, but then it went from being a, oh, do you have this? And some said yes to which system are you using? Because now everybody is using it, whether it's Zoom or Teams or Slack or some other solution. I think it's going to continue to focus on that more than anything. Obviously, there are other changes, but just the pure volume of that information that everybody has to deal with now, as opposed to in prior years, is going to force it to become the number one concern and the number one issue that key discovery providers, lawyers, courts, everyone has to deal with, and, and even into regulatory as well. What permanent changes are you seeing as a result of the pandemic? What you're seeing is that a lot of organizations are looking at this and saying, all of these systems are now letting our employees be as productive, if not more productive. Even when the pandemic is over, a lot of organizations, and some organizations already have, I think it's Facebook and Microsoft and others have already said, this is permanent going forward. We're going to let people work remotely from wherever they want to. So all the things we have to deal with, with the vast increase in remote work, whether it's the platforms like that, or just simply the much larger, broader world of where data could be. Now you're dealing with home computers a lot of times as a default instead of the exception. All of that stuff is going to outlast the pandemic and continue going forward long after the pandemic is in our rearview mirror. Hopefully that'll happen sooner rather than later. What challenges are those data sources, Slack, Microsoft Teams, and other collaboration platforms posing to your clients? On the collection side, there's the idea that if a company hasn't embraced a single technology and really enforced that within the organization, the end result often is that the employees will find their own way. We continually recommend to our clients that you need to embrace this 
adopt a clear system, put policies in place, let employees know, and make sure that you are establishing expectations with your employees as to what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Because if you don't start putting boundaries around that and defining that and listening to your employees and making sure they have the tools they need to work in the remote world, they're going to go find their own. That creates a nightmare scenario of just having to deal with who knows what kind of systems are out in the wild that your employees are using. If those policies aren't in place, when it comes to collections, having to really lean heavily on things like custodian questionnaires and custodian interviews to try to figure out on a literally employee by employee or custodian by custodian basis where all of this data exists first. So this whole idea of data mapping is no longer talking about mapping data just within the corporate environment like we're all used to. It's not like there hasn't been this kind of wild west of employees going and using systems on their own without talking to people in the past. But again, it has been exponentially increased because everybody is remotely working and they feel more free to do whatever they need to to get their job done. Corporations might at least consider their retention and production and legal hold obligations when choosing these systems, but employees obviously don't. So you end up, if employees have selected their own platforms, you're more likely to encounter platforms that are extraordinarily difficult to get data out of. You're going to be looking at ephemeral messaging platforms that the data may be gone very quickly and it's not even there anymore. And that brings up regulatory issues and legal hold issues as well. It becomes a much more difficult issue across the board, just in identifying and collecting that data. And of course, that just follows all the way down. It's how do you then process? Does it, is there even a system that can handle data from whatever system you've had to collect data from? Obviously, there's all sorts of ways now to handle things like Slack and Teams, and they have e-discovery components to them, and other solutions have that. A lot of these other platforms don't. You're challenged at every single phase of the EDRM, from collection to processing to ECA to review production all the way along. And a lot of times you have to be very nimble and reinvent the wheel and create custom solutions as you go along when you encounter platforms that just weren't designed for compliance with any of these obligations. It's a challenge that literally hits every single aspect of the EDRM. Given these developments, where are discovery professionals applying and gaining the most value from analytics? A lot of that starts with the processing, trying to figure out how best to process this data into a usable form. Because at the end of the day, analytics largely just deals with text files. But the problem with that is take email threading, for example. There's an awful lot of analytics around email threading from near dupes to branches and threadings and all this very nice, everything from the way it displays to the way you could produce it to being able to produce just inclusive threads. So you reduce production and review requirements. That doesn't exist really in messaging of any kind. There are solutions that are getting better for some of that, but still not a lot of it. I don't know necessarily if there's an easy answer to do the same type of analytics with those kind of communications as you do with email, just because the amount of metadata that's usually relied on by all of those systems just doesn't exist in a lot of these other solutions. So those analytic things aren't as easy. However, to the extent you're just analyzing the text itself, then that comes down to making sure that however you're processing the data and getting it into those systems presents text that those systems can use. You got to put a lot of thought into it three or four steps before you ever get to the analytics platform. And it really comes down to having experts who understand how those platforms work, being involved earlier in the process to make sure whatever data you collect is processed and prepared in the best way possible to the extent possible to take best advantage, whether you're talking about BrainSpace or H5 or XLP or Relativity Analytics or what have you. What challenges does the shifting regulatory landscape for data privacy pose for eDiscovery? 
The biggest challenge, I think, is just trying to keep up with what is currently out there. Obviously, the GDPR has been around for a long time, but that landscape changed a little bit in recent years as far as the privacy shield and safe harbors and things like that. And that's still a little bit up in the air and has been slowed down significantly just because priorities have been around the pandemic more than anything else. But then in the States, you had California pass their laws. New York has privacy law as well. California has a new privacy law that's going into effect. Virginia just passed a law. I did securities litigation before I got into e-discovery. And in that world, you have this idea of blue sky laws, where not only do you have the SEC and the federal regulations, but you have all these state regulations as well that you need to worry about. It's very complex because different states can have different rules and there are attorneys who specialize in nothing but that. I kind of see data privacy quickly going down that path. The only hope is that the federal government steps in and creates a national standard that overrides and essentially voids the states and takes a centralized approach to creating a comprehensive data privacy scheme. Because without that, it's going to become impossible for corporations to do business, which in turn means that we as e-discovery providers have to start looking at, in this case, which privacy rules apply here and to this case and to that case. It becomes this incredibly complex labyrinth that we're going to all have to navigate from whether it's how you collect your own customer information as a commercial company to how we as e-discovery providers have to make sure that information is handled and and appropriately produced, redacted, what have you, in various litigations in various areas. So most of the consumer privacy stuff and data privacy laws in the States have focused more on the commercial use of that, not necessarily the legal use of that. But you look at the GDPR, and it's about as clear as mud as to how that applies to the use of data in litigation. There's some exceptions there for legitimate legal purposes, but what exactly that means has yet to be tested fully and defined fully. So as, you know, I'm afraid you're going to see that same kind of thing in the States. You're going to see more unanswered questions than there are answers because so many of these laws are much more focused on anything but discovery or litigation, but yet may have an application there as well. And it's up to us as professionals in the industry to try to figure out, okay, well, how does this apply to the litigation? And again, history tells us that most of those laws, because they don't focus on those areas, leave us guessing and having to say, look, here's the best case. Here's what you should do to protect yourself because it isn't clear out there and it's just going to get worse. Where do you see e-discovery headed this year? There's been a lot of improvements lately in a lot of different platforms around two areas more than anything else. One being the incorporation of analytics, whether it's reveal purchasing both NextLP or BrainSpace or Relativity doing similar things and other platforms just focusing on increasing their analytics. Because the more and more you can do analytics, the less and less you have to worry about the team of 100 reviewers or 200 reviewers on some big case. We're already doing this on some cases, really case and circumstance dependent where it doesn't matter how many documents you have. You don't need more than five or 10 reviewers if you're using analytics the right way. And you really need to have that small of a group to make analytics work the right way. And that's where I see analytics and document review going is focusing more on, hey, let's have a smaller group of very well-educated, very well-experienced, very knowledgeable in the subject matter attorneys who are doing the primary work to feed those analytics tools and getting better results. And it has become for us and our clients, mainly the default approach. And only under certain circumstances that don't fit that model perfectly, do we have to go to a broader, larger team. These days, if your first thought is, oh, we've got a million documents to review, we need to go get 50 or 100 or 250 attorneys, what have you, you're approaching it entirely wrong. People started understanding the importance of analytics. Now it's Let's focus on how best to do this. It's so important about the people. 
I always say people want to call it AI. It's not AI, it's machine learning. What that means is it takes the intelligence of the people and multiplies it. So it's all the more important you have really good, really smart, really knowledgeable people who understand the case and understand the law in that case. Those should be your core team. And it really, at some point in that process, it doesn't matter how many documents there are anymore. It doesn't matter if there are 100,000, 2 million or 10 million documents, you should still be able to do the same work with the same high quality and a better quality that you ever could with the individuals with the right team assembled for that. And the other thing is the whole continuous updating of how to deal with all these new collaboration platforms. As I mentioned before, I think that's going to continue to be something you're seeing all sorts of review platforms continually coming out with, here's our new module for Slack, or here's our new module for Teams, or here's a new connector for this platform or that platform. I think you're going to see a lot of the e-discovery software vendors in any peak adoption, clearly in a massive adoption of those platforms. Anytime that comes in, then you have a long period of the people have to deal with the end result of that in our industry, starting to focus on, okay, well, how do we handle all this stuff? And because there's just so many options out there, it's going to be at least a year or two before we see that start to slow down and become accepted because there's just so many platforms that the e-discovery software companies will have to figure out how to handle the data from various places because there's nothing close to a standard. At least with email, whether you're collecting from Outlook or Gmail or Lotus Notes or what have you, there was always a base format how that data was stored. That doesn't exist in a lot of these systems. There are some basic commonalities between platforms, but there's nowhere near the same kind of definition that you had in the various email platforms. So it's a lot of customization, a lot of tooling, a lot of work, a lot of connectors. You continue to see that not only from the collection side and the processing side, but also in the review side, because how do you display all that stuff in a way that makes sense for reviewers to be able to really decide, does this smiley face mean anything in the context of the entire thread of the chat? This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Brian Schrader, the president and CEO of BIA, a provider of e-discovery services and digital forensics. Brian, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.